Okay, labor and love here. I pity the poor immigrant, that European immigrant who came here with his system of exploitation called capitalism and set it on this continent, the Americas, and uh, ushered in a new era of repression and marketplace cruelty. By the way, um, I was watching a, a documentary and it said that uh, the government troops were, uh, government soldiers were searching for communist troops. Communist troops were coming. Now, uh, when they talk about wars and stuff like that, they never say capitalist troops, that U.S. troops are capitalist troops. Oh, yeah, okay, go on. What kind of music do we have here? Music of social significance. I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it. Appealing with feeling and meeting it Sing me a song with social significance Or you can sing till you're blue Let meaning shine from every line Or I won't love you Sing me of wars and sing me of breadlines Tell me of front page news Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines Sing me a song with social significance There's nothing else that will do It must get hot with what is what Or I won't love you I want a song that's satirical Putting the mirror into miracle Or I won't love you Sing me of kings and conferences marshal Tell me of mills and mines Sing me of courts that aren't impartial What's to be done with them? Tell me in rhythm Sing me a song with social significance There's nothing else that will do It must be tense with common sense or I won't love you
history books got it all wrong, so I come to you with a song. In 1810, con el gran grito de pasión, se levantaron con razón. Black and brown fighting together on a day I'll always remember. En el 5 de mayo, con el grito de gallo, black, white, and brown bleeding together on a day I'll always remember. Cause really, it hasn't been that long, so just in case Cat Williams had you guessing, let me kick y'all down with a little history lesson. In the 19th century, while the U.S. promoted degradation, annihilation with its military and U.S. Navy, Mexico got rid of the caste system, voted for its first indigenous president, even getting rid of legalized slavery. The Underground Railroad also ran south, led black folks to freedom with Mexico right there to receive them. In 1910, it was Mexican men with Pancho Villa and Zapata fighting for tierra, libertad y techo with Adelitas on the front line with bullets across their pecho. In the year 1946, it was the Mendez family that fought against segregation in schools. Because before that, they treated us like fools, pushing us out into gangs, wars, and drugs. And then they get pissed off at us when we become crips and bloods, traviesos, zutsuras, pachucos, folkloristas, punks, bomberas, haraneras in the heat, haraneras with the bomb as beats. Talking about what's really going on in the streets. In the 60s, in the streets of Oakland, California, Black Panthers organized for answers. Young lords in New York fought against wars. The Stonewall Rebellion remained true for the rights of the LGBTQ. AIM, who was down for native rights with no shame in their game. Brown berets in LA learning how to fight and doing what's right. In the campos of California, Filipinos were the first ones to lay down the boycott. Screaming in solidarity, Isang Baksak, one rise, one fall. You come for one, you come for all. And today, Arizona and Alabama, they don't play. Carving out racist laws like it's made out of clay. I stand with Emmett, Trayvon, Oscar, and Bell. With my mentor, Mumia, up in the cell. Telling you I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day while my people are hunt down like prey. My ability to breathe is directly connected to my ability to see. It's not about me, never was, never will be. It's about we. It's time to move, y'all. My people. It's movement time. Good morning, everybody. This is... Uh, the Labor and Love Show. Coming to you from Mutiny Radio here, 2781 21st Street. Heart of the Mission. Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. Where we let you know that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. To remind you that if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're probably on the menu. In fact, I guarantee it. And third, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. 
Labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Morning, everybody. We'll be back here after a week. A week's hiatus. Um, had to say some goodbyes last week to some people who were leaving for a long way away. Labor and Love show this morning. A big defeat for right to work in Missouri. I mean, union people and other workers handed the head of of the right to work movement. We got radio labor. Let's see. You've heard of the gender pay gap, but there's more to it. A dollar an hour to fight the largest fire in California history. Our prison firefighting programs slave labor. A black prosecutor pulls off an upset. Black progressive pulls off an upset against prosecutor who declined to charge a cop for killing Michael Brown. The NFL's heating up now. Exhibition games have begun. Donald Trump and U.S. conservatives continue their campaign against athletes who seek to draw attention to the treatment of minority communities. Okay. Then right from the front lines, from Baltimore's waterfront Marriott Hotel, we've got interview with women, mostly women who are on strike there. And then we've got other, you know, our regular features here. But let's give it a start. I was... Um, I was um, reading a lot over the weekend. I got started reading a book about uh, Robert Kennedy and all the uh, ins and outs of Robert Kennedy's life. He was such a cold warrior and such a anti-communist crusader and uh, the myth that they tell you or maybe it's true who can say but it's a myth it's part of the myth is that he um, when he saw how bad off people were combined with his own grief over his brother's death um, he somehow got compassion uh, you know, and of course it's hard to tell, uh, but that's the story. Here's a little uh, <coughs> commentary from Lenny Bruce, a contemporary of Robert Kennedy, talking about Kennedy's desire to break James R. Hoffa of the Teamsters. It seems to me that the true Christian of the year, I have a different concept of Christianity, would be that Jimmy Hoffa, he's more of a Christian than Bobby Kennedy. Why do I say that? Because Jimmy Hoffa hired ex-convicts, as Christ would have, knowingly. I assume Christ would hire ex-convicts, or is Pat O'Brien full of shit? 
You got Christ all wrong, kid. He was a hate you, God, and uh, he wouldn't make the people suffer. That's a goddamn lie. Christ would have been a groovy statesman because um, Castro, we would have had no heat from Castro. He wouldn't have went up to the Teresa. Uh-uh. Christ would have had dinner with him at least, giving him some love. No, you got it all wrong. He would have cut Castro's nuts out, kid. He was good with a Bowie knife. In fact, uh, if you know about that faint Castro, if you've been to Havana before or after, you'll see what he's done there. He's ruined it. It used to be a beautiful place. You go there today, can't get narcotics, no abortions, no gambling. He knocked Superman out of a gig. Some guy had a big joint, used to work exhibitions. The most unforgettable character I ever met. <laughs> that would really be weird. It seems to me that the true Christian of the year, I have a different concept of Christianity. Okay, there's Lenny Bruce claiming that uh, James R. Hoffa, because he gives work to convicts, is a true Christian. Uh, his take on that. We used to have a, uh, in the workshops, I would sometimes have a contest. Think about these two white guys. Who are they? Oh, one of them um, quit work when he was 12 years old to raise money for his family because his father had died of a lung disease. The other was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, went to a succession of private schools and was implicated in some of them in cheating scandals. Okay. Number one, white guy number one, became a labor leader when he was 14 years old, when he led us a work stop, a stoppage at the place where they were loading crates of fruits off trucks. And the bosses, the, the managers there would use the speed up, try to get people to work as fast as they could going around harassing me you know you could work you know you could work faster than that come on you did better than that yesterday you're gonna let this guy over here beat you you know he's talking about you he's telling you what a bum worker you are the white guy number two um worked for joe mccarthy and was one of his uh, most ardent supporters, a, a friend of the family, actually. Never worked a day in his life that he didn't want to. Uh, was obsessed with killing Fidel Castro, whereas white guy number one sent money to Fidel Castro. Um... White guy number one was a fan of Martin Luther King and talked about what a great organizer King was. White guy number two put a wiretap on King's phones in attempts to discredit him. Accused King of being a communist or having communists on his staff. Okay, so of course, white guy number one is James R. Hoffa. White guy number two, the rich guy is Bobby Kennedy. I'm not, I don't mean to say that you know, Hoffa was this 
sterling character and Kennedy was a complete bum. What, what I'm saying is that our judgment of who people are and how they are is profoundly affected by the, the uh, environment that their lives are presented in or as we watch their lives unfold. Okay. Great count bases. Not one o'clock, but eleven will do. Ten will do. Monday morning rail 15 
semiconductors and 25 sacks of mail. All along the southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out from Kankakee and rolls along past houses, farms, and fields. And trains that have no names And freight yards filled with old black men And the graveyards of the rusty automobile
day is gone
weeks and months and years with that impossible love in my heart. Can't stand it any longer. I'm catching up, baby. I'm catching up. Shabam. 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 Dun, dun, dun. One of Basie's blues solos. Okay. We had City of New Orleans by the Highwaymen, and we had a sushi with We Want Justice, Got to Have Justice. This is the B, and we're coming to you from Mutiny Radio at 2781 21st Street. In the heart of the mission, El Mero Mero. Uh, we might say the disappearing mission. Uh, we might. The disappearing Bay Area, really. The prices of, of homes, both to rent and to buy in the Bay Area, are so high. You've got to have a lot of money to come here, which changes the whole demographic of the area. We used to complain in the 60s and 70s that San Francisco had opted instead of to become, instead of a port town, a tourist attraction, a convention center. And it did. And now we're seeing the result of those forces in, in action. We want justice, got to have justice. Okay, Missouri voters overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly reject a right to work, a statewide right right to work bill. Unions in, this is from uh, Portside. Unions in Missouri are declaring victory after voters shot down a Republican-backed right to work law by a hefty two to one. Final vote was 937,241 against the legislation to 452,075 in favor. <clears throat> Missouri became the 28th state with a right to work law on the books in February 2017 when Republican Governor Eric Greitens signed the law at a ceremony in an abandoned factory. In response, thousands of union members hit the streets to gather enough signatures to trigger a referendum vote that could repeal the law. Over the course of six months, activists gathered 310,567 signatures, more than three times the number needed. Right to Work was put on hold until voters could decide. <clears throat> 
Also, the signatures were gathered by volunteer rank and filers. Labor educator Judy Ansell wrote for Labor Notes last summer about how the drive energized local unions. Brian Simmons, a machinist local 778, took on a coordinating role in very red Cass County, south of Kansas City. He was elated with the newcomer activists from various unions. They began saying, brother and sister, you can't, you ask them to turn out and they do. They ask, how can we do better? We had people asking where to go when they got run off a spot. They'd be willing to go, go across town telling me, I'm on it. Anyway, on and on details about the campaign. The fir- at first, the referendum vote was set for November, but Republican lawmakers moved the date up to August, hoping to hurt the referendum's chances by suppressing voter turnout and to avoid a November uptick in union workers that could give Democrats a boost. An employer-backed group also circulated a petition to institute right to work through an amendment to the state constitution. Despite nearly $1 million spent, that that effort failed. Last week, one, one striker says, last week, one campaigner said, I spoke with a non-union single mother. We did not discuss fair share. Instead, we talked about the myriad workers' issues workers face in our state. I asked her if she thought the odds were better for expanding Medicaid in this state with a strong union movement or a weak one. This has got to be a key issue for the labor movement. Health care for all, good health care for all. Initial, at any rate. So here's what I, I bring from this. Um, we're a little bit too simplistic when we say this person is a union person so they'll vote this way and this person is not a union person so they'll vote against unions. That's not the case. Plenty of people want to be in unions. But if they can't, they don't feel like they should pay union dues. Right? They don't think others should be forced to pay it. It's, it's um, complicated the way people think about these things and, and vote. Someone might be against unions at their workplace but say, well, yeah, workers should have the right, you know, to organize if they want to. I don't particularly want to, but workers should have that right. Things like that. People are fair-minded. Um... This week, Radio Labor doesn't have uh, a podcast. We've got something here that 
talks about New World Bank rules for decent work and unions. The World Bank now has got a labor policy. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. The World Bank has announced that all of its projects will have to comply with a new set of rules aimed at improving working conditions and supporting trade unions. The bank is a development agency which provides more than $30 billion for capital projects such as infrastructure and social services. It works mainly in developing countries. The new set of rules, called a safeguard in World Bank parlance, will have a significant effect for employers and workers. To find out more about the new rules, I talked to Leo Bonnock. Mr. Bonnock is a research officer with the Office of the International Trade Union Confederation and Global Unions in Washington. I asked him to describe the bank and the new labor rules. The World Bank is really kind of the foremost public multilateral institution dedicated to international development. And they currently describe their mission as ending poverty and promoting shared prosperity. In doing that, the World Bank provides over $30 billion in loans every year to fund development projects, giving them a very large footprint and a great deal of influence around the world. After many years of work by trade unions, the World Bank approved a labor safeguard or a labor standard in August 2016 that protects the rights of everyone who works on a project funded by the World Bank. The safeguards will go into effect later this year, meaning that the World Bank will join other development banks in taking proactive steps to protect project workers and respect labor rights more generally. First and foremost, this is necessary because the World Bank should ensure that the thousands of workers who execute their projects are treated fairly and provided with good jobs and decent, safe working conditions. If projects that are meant to improve lives and drive economic development are created by exploiting and abusing workers, then the mission of the World Bank is undermined from the start. Later this year, in October, the annual meetings of the World Bank will be taking place in Bali, in Indonesia. In 2004, a trade union survey found that a bank-funded infrastructure project in Bali included children working in hazardous conditions, pay discrimination based on gender, failure to make social security payments, and two workers who were killed on the job. So as the World Bank prepares to walk on the national the international stage in Bali, this sort of thing will be reduced by the labor safeguard and give workers a tool to fight back against rights violations. And I think finally it's necessary because we as a, as a trade union movement are working to push the bank to support a future that is defined by development and by decent work. What sectors are most likely to be affected by these new rules, the safeguard as they're called? The biggest and most visible area where the World Bank is involved is in infrastructure, both development and upgrades to existing assets. So these are things like roads, water projects, facilities to produce or transmit electricity. That's the largest source of um, their funding, both because these are a priority and because they're quite expensive. But the World Bank also provides loans to governments for a wide range of projects, for example, expanding healthcare services, expanding public transportation, reforming government agencies, or promoting economic diversification, just to name a few areas. And this new labor safeguard is going to, going to apply to all workers employed on those projects. 
regardless of whether they work for the government borrower, most of the borrowers from the World Bank are governments, or for a private contractor. In many cases, governments borrowing from the World Bank will contract private companies to carry out key activities, and those private companies will be the largest employer on a bank-funded project. What will the safeguard do for workers employed on World Bank projects? This new labor safeguard will require occupational health and safety measures. It prohibits discrimination in hiring. It prohibits harassment on the job. It ensures that workers are provided with clear information about the terms of their employment. And it also protects the right to form a trade union, forbids forced and child labor, and takes particular steps to protect migrant workers, women, and other groups that are often targeted by discrimination and abuse in the workplace. It also requires a grievance process if a trade union has not already negotiated one and requires borrowers to monitor their supply chains for forced or child labor and major occupational health and safety risks. So this safeguard is a quite comprehensive document that is a binding requirement for taking a loan from the bank and sets out a number of steps that have to be taken by that borrower. The new rules warn against, and I quote, disguised employment relationships. What are disguised employment relationships? Between the approval of the labor safeguard in 2016 and today, when we're really on the eve of implementing the labor safeguard later this year, the World Bank has been training their staff and creating materials for borrower governments to better understand and implement the safeguards when that happens. This includes a recently released guidance note that provides more detail on the labor safeguard and brings up this issue of disguised employment. Disguised employment is any attempt to misclassify a worker. Common examples are falsely labeling someone as an independent contractor or self-employed worker. This is usually done by companies to avoid their responsibilities and deny their workers basic protections, even though these people who are misclassified are working long-term for that company and the way that they do their work is controlled by that company. So, for example, a company can avoid having to pay health care. They can avoid having to pay into unemployment systems and could avoid legal liability for workplace injuries. And this is something that's happening, unfortunately, in increasing number of cases in the world of work all over the globe, especially in construction and transportation, areas where the World Bank is quite active. So by taking a stand against disguised employment, the World Bank is helping to ensure that unscrupulous employers will not be able to sidestep the new labor safeguard by misclassifying or disguising their employment relationships. Are the core standards of the International Labor Organization included in the new rules? Almost all of the subjects of the core labor standards are addressed in the World Bank Labor Safeguard, but the core labor standards are not referenced by name in the document. This is due in part to resistance from World Bank management towards a whole manner of international human rights uh, agreements and frameworks, and is also likely because some governments push against inclusion of the core labor standards. When we look at the labor safeguards that exist at other multilateral development banks, such as the African Development Bank, those standards, those safeguards, begin by recognizing the core labor standards as underpinning and guiding their labor safeguard. But the World Bank stated that it would prefer not to refer to outside standards, We believe this is misguided and undermines the realization of basic worker rights for everyone, regardless of what country they live in. 
It also creates some weaknesses in the World Bank's labor safeguard. While some of the core labor standards are upheld completely, such as the prohibition of forced and child labor in all projects and all cases, the right to form a union and collectively bargained is, and is subject to national law. And in many countries around the world, there are, of course, legal and practical restrictions on forming a union, which are not fully addressed by the World Bank safeguard. However, the recent guidance note created by the World Bank for borrowers explicitly names and explains the core labor standards. And this is a step towards filling that gap, hopefully in implementation. Will the new safeguard make a difference for workers employed in World Bank-funded projects? Absolutely. This standard will make a difference for a large number of workers by compelling, requiring governments who lend money from the World Bank to take steps to protect project workers. The safeguard has the potential to set an example of how human and trade union rights can be fully respected in places where there are often violations. And in a time when trade unions are facing increasing repression, this could be an important tool for workers to organize unions, improve their working conditions, and ensure that economic growth includes quality jobs. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger, the news producer at Radio Labour. We are on a union break until Monday, September 3rd, 2018. Now here, as a reminder of what it's all about, is Michael Roos with his take on Solidarity Forever. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we gotta aid our workday This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la di da Unions fought hard for your right to party they're out there to ease your tension With decent wages, health care, and pensions Now it's like unions blamed for bad weather But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever I wanna shout it on high, get it off my chest The story here is fighting for those who have less So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war Think what they done, where they stand, who they fight for Okay, that's our radio labor segment. A lot of interesting stuff about the World Bank now. The World Bank is, of course, um, often the villain, often coming into a country and demanding that its government uh, cut social spending in order to pay uh, its interest on its debt. Companies, uh, countries like Greece and Portugal and Spain fared very badly. They, they borrowed so much money, in the case of Greece anyway, they borrowed so much money to balance their uh, budget that the, the interest payments were killing them. The, the bankers were coming in and dictating uh, public policy which, which often happens. <clears throat> okay, you've heard of the gender pay gap, but there's more. This is on popularresistance.org, and Google is suppressing the site, so please use it 
and share the stories. Okay, it takes a typical black worker, black woman, 20 months to earn what a white male worker earns in a single year. The gender wage gap continues to harm women, their families, and the economy, despite women being in the workforce for decades. Not all women are marginalized by this disparity in the same way. In 1996, a National Committee on Pay Equity decided to bring awareness to the wage gap by creating National Equal Pay Day. The day signifies how long it takes for a woman to make the same amount of money a man makes for the year prior. Each year, Equal Pay Day for All is held in April, meaning it will take an average woman about 16 months up until a date in April to make what a typical man makes in a year. But when we look at the wage gap for women of color, this day of catching up falls way later in the year into August. While white women make only 80 cents to every dollar men make, black women working the same number of hours typically make just 63 cents for every dollar paid to their white non-Hispanic male counterparts. Check it out. Um, in, in the U.S. economy, in capitalism, the, the two vertices of class and ethnicity Correspond. I mean, this is one way people get uh, this is one way that wealth is distributed, that that the permanence of the wage structure and of the social structure is guaranteed by paying certain people more and certain people less. wage theft. It's uh, legalized wage theft, huh? Let's see. Okay, so that's the popular resistance. Let's see if I want to talk about this question of firefighters. Okay, now let's say you're a prisoner in a in a uh, federal or state prison and there's fire, forest fires you'd offer the chance to work for one dollar an hour one dollar an hour now some people might say well yeah I want to get out there and work for the good of society or whatever else reason they are for a dollar an hour. Others would say, no, I'm not going to go do that. That's risky work. I should be making much more money. Okay, here's Amy Goodman from uh, Democracy Now! 
Now, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We continue our coverage of the California wildfires with a look at who's actually fighting the fires, and it may just surprise you. In addition to roughly 7,000 full-time and seasonal California firefighters, the state relies on about 3,500 prisoners, including many women, to battle the blazes. The California Department of Corrections tweeted last week that at least 2,000 prisoners are currently fighting the wildfires burning across the state, including 58 youth offenders. Earlier this month, California Governor Jerry Brown thanked the firefighters on the front lines, including those who are incarcerated. You've heard there's a tremendous effort fighting these fires, and I want to personally thank all the firefighters who are on the line. Uh, the members of CAL FIRE, uh, also the National Guard, and the thousands of inmates who are also on the line fighting to protect lives and uh, bring these fires to a, a quick close to the extent that's at all possible. Prisoner firefighters live in one of 43 low-security field camps throughout the state and are routinely called upon to fight fires. Prison firefighters earn time off of their sentences for good behavior, typically two days off for each day served. But critics of the program say the state is exploiting prisoners' eagerness to earn time for early release, while salaried firefighters earn an annual mean wage of $74,000 a year plus benefits. Prisoners earn just $2 per day, with an additional dollar per hour when fighting active fire. According to some estimates, California avoids spending about 80 to $100 million a year by using prison labor to fight its biggest environmental problem. For more, we're joined by two women. Ralston, Ralston, a member of of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, L.A. Chapter, Program Coordinator for Project Rebound at Cal State University. Romarilyn was in jail for 23 years, and while she was imprisoned, she was a fire camp trainer and a clerk for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. Also with us, Deidre Wilson, former Program Coordinator for the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. She was imprisoned for three and a half years. She spent a year of her time behind bars as a landscaper at Puerto Cruz, a women's fire camp in San Diego. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Romarilyn, let's begin with you. Explain what these fire camps are. People who are watching or listening right now might be completely shocked to hear that prisoners are on the front lines of fighting these fires. Explain what the program is. Well, the program is, is a way for incarcerated people to get trained in firefighting. Um, Wildland firefighting is, is, is something that um, we hope um, incarcerated people can use on the outside post-release. Um, people join um, the firefighting crews, sometimes voluntarily when they are incarcerated. Sometimes they are assigned to uh, the fire camp training program um, because of their low-level offenses. And so, especially for women, uh, it's a way to earn, you know, two days off your sentence. It's a, it's a way to give back to your community. Um, it's a way to get closer to your family, to your children. Um, and it's a way to, to get out of the normal prison when setting. When you say get closer is, to your children, you mean that kids can come to the fire camp to see you? The, the visiting process is, is very different at the, the fire camps. Um, it's more open, it's, it's a more relaxed environment, um, and it's more conducive for family visiting, yes. 
And Romarilyn, can you explain why you just mentioned the fact that uh, incarcerated prisoners uh, who've worked as firefighters, once they're released, they can't actually be employed as firefighters. Could you explain why? Yes, um, the firefighter training that you receive um, while you're incarcerated, um, you don't get enough of the training needed to apply to CAL FIRE. Um, because of licensing, um, incarcerated firefighters are not, uh, or folks with a criminal record, once they are released, are not able to get an EMT license. And that's one of the critical pieces to applying for these jobs post-release. Um, you need to have an EMT certification and you need to have fire science training, which you get a little bit of that when you're going through the classroom training. But there's college credits, there's other things that help you to rank higher in these application processes. And so you don't get a lot of the training that's needed to get these jobs post-release. You have the experience, the frontline experience. You've placed your life on the line. Um, you've protected California. Uh, you've saved lives and property. But they don't take into consideration all of that experience that you have on the front line. They are still looking for a certain degree of training and licensing in order to employ you. And we think that that's wrong. Um, the state of California in their training of incarcerated firefighters should provide the same training that they provide for folks on the outside. If they don't want to do that, um, then they should give credit for the work that folks do on these fires and consider that training as enough for them to get jobs post-release, because it is. If it's enough to fight while you're incarcerated, um, if it's enough for you to fight the fire while you're incarcerated on the training that you received inside the prison, it should be enough once you're released. Uh, Deidre Wilson, I wanted to bring you into this conversation. Um, how much do prisoner firefighters make? Uh, well, the people in the fire camps, it's $2 a day, but when you're out fighting a fire, it's a dollar per hour. Um, Some have criticized this as slave labor. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, and the, the contradiction in what Romerlin was speaking about in terms of um, people getting positions when they're released, if the, if the intention was really to rehabilitate and set people up for success once they're released. They would have a program, say, where people that had the training had some kind of continued um, interim training where they were supported specifically in their situations to go on and have a career. But that does not exist. People fall through the cracks because the intention is really to make use of this labor that um, the state is saving $100 million on. Well, Deirdre, uh, it's interesting to note that the state of Arizona also uses incarcerated firefighters, but in Arizona, they're allowed to start a career uh, once out of prison. Now, of course, California does not permit that. Do you know of any attempts in the California legislature to alter this? Mm. That would be Romarilyn's. Uh, <laughs> go, ahead, Romarilyn, go ahead, Romarilyn, go ahead. Uh, Governor Brown did um, propose 
uh, approximately $26 million to create a training and certification program uh, that would help support um, incarcerated firefighters in receiving the, the training that they need post-release. Uh, we don't know where that is or how that's going to all wash out um, in the end, but that is uh, part of the budget proposal for this year. And so we hope that knowing what we know about California, and you've heard uh, Governor Brown early speaking about, um, these fires are just going to continue. And, and with global warming, they're going to continue to get worse. So if we're going to use incarcerated firefighter labor to fight fires, um, we need to respect um, their expertise once they are released and give them jobs. Because the co collateral consequences of not doing that is California, you know, going up in smoke. And so we can't afford that. Um, David there's Coffey. a lot of ways that incarcerated firefighters can get that training inside. Um, the, the, they have the means to do it. The director of the ACLU's National Prison Project told The Atlantic last year, you have to understand the uniquely coercive prison environment where few things are clearly voluntary. In light of the vast power and equality between prisoners and those who employ them, there's a real potential for exploitation and abuse. And of course, there's a real pretend, uh, potential here in addition to exploitation and abuse. Um, we're talking about life and death situations. Um, can you explain what life is like on the front lines for a prisoner Firefighter, Deidre. Uh, it's exhausting. My uh, my particular job was inside the camp. I was a landscaper. Um, I was supposed to work as a clerk because I have administrative experience, but I had spent time in CIW, so I knew too many people, and they didn't trust me in the office. So um, that was why I was sent out to pasture, as I call it, to do the landscaping. So I wasn't actually out on a fire line also because I was vulnerable to poison oak, which a lot of people are. And when you breathe um, poison oak in the air, if you're allergic, um, your throat can close up and you can, you can die. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so that was a concern. And my whole purpose was to get back to my children, as it is for so many people that go to fire camp, is to reduce your time to get out and be with your families. So when they say it's volunteer, that, that makes me kind of... <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't volunteer to go to prison. We didn't enter prison in order to go to the fire camp and fight the fire. So it's really not truthful to say it's volunteer. That's, I mean, um, this is an absolutely critical point. Romarilyn, have people mm -hmm. died on the front lines fighting fires? There are reports that, that incarcerated people have lost their lives um, fighting fires. But back to the point on, on volunteering, you know, you have to fit a criteria to be assigned uh, to fire camp. And so it's, it's a little different, different um, for, for folks who are sentenced with, with serious offenses or, or a life term. And so, as Deidre said, it's the, the volunteer part really doesn't hold um, folks volunteer or get assigned to these positions because of the credits that you can earn. You want to get that that day for day or, or that half time or third time. You want to get back to your family and your children. That's what's important. Ramarilyn, before we conclude very quickly, um, some have expressed concerns that opposition to the program may actually lead to its end, which would ultimately be worse uh, uh, for prisoners. Would you agree with that? Mm, I. I, I would 
I would kind of agree with that. I, I think if we could get the certification and the training um, that Governor Brown is proposing in his budget, um, so that when folks are released, that they're able to be hired by CAL FIRE and, and work for that $74,000 a year that other firefighters make. It costs the state of California almost $80,000 to incarcerate a person a year. And when you're released, there's so many barriers to employment because you have a criminal record. And if we can use the experience of incarcerated firefighters to get those jobs on the outside, it's just good governance for California. We want to reduce the prison population. Governor Brown's been under mandate to do that for a while now. Um, we want folks to have access to, to good employment so that they don't recidivate and they're able to take care of their families. Okay, so that's the skinny on firefighters. What do you think? Are they slaves? I, I think it's hard to say, it's hard to talk about anyone volunteering for anything. <clears throat> In a, <clears throat> a prison sense or a, an army military sense. <clears throat> People don't really have a clear choice, an honest choice. Black progressive pulls off upset against prosecutor who declined to charge cop for Michael Brown. <coughs> Ferguson City Council member Wesley Bell defeated 27 gear incumbent Bob McCullough in the Democratic primary for St. Louis County's prosecutor. Both candidates are notably the children of police officers. <clears throat> McCulloch gained infamy for his refusal to prosecute the officer who fatally shot unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown in 2014. Their shooting inspired the National Black Lives Matter movement, now a powerful force in progressive politics. The incumbent prosecutor has never prosecuted a cop for killing an unarmed civilian in his seven-year history. That's on resistance. Okay, let's see. How about the NFL? Then we'll have some uh, music. Mr. Trump insists on sticking his nose into the business of the NFL and its fans and its players. U.S. President Donald Trump has criticized American football players who refused to stand during the national anthem on the NFL's first preseason game, saying that they should stand up or be suspended without pay. The players say they'd want to draw attention to social injustices, but the NFL is under pressure to rein in the protests. Okay, let's hear this one. 
These gestures made during the national anthem proved more controversial than any play made on the field during the NFL's opening night. The NFL players are at it again, President Trump tweeted, making his disapproval known. He described the players as showing outrage at something that most of them are unable to define. Stand proudly for your national anthem, he added, or be suspended without pay. We believe uh, everyone should stand for the national anthem. That's but league officials said the players would not be punished as they continue negotiating a league-wide policy. We remain committed to working with the players to identify solutions and to continue making progress on important social issues affecting our communities, the NFL said in a statement. Players say they want to call attention to social injustices, not show disrespect for the flag or the military. I just think it's important uh, that we continue to you know, keep this uh, conversation going, um, that we don't let it get stagnant. But American athletes continue to take heat, with one conservative commentator stoking racial tensions by calling on basketball star LeBron James to shut up and dribble. James, who has donated millions to educate underprivileged children, has taken that as the title of a new docu-series, looking at the role of athletes in today's politically charged environment. We will definitely not uh, shut up and dribble. Um, I would definitely not do that. I mean too much to um, um, to society. I mean too much to the youth. Highlighting what now may be the biggest rivalry in professional sports, the players versus the president. Kristen Salumi, Al Jazeera. Okay, that's Al, Al Jazeera's take. <clears throat> on uh nfl now you know do you when you go to work let's let's talk about this in a work in a work context when you go to work does that mean you have you have to turn your mind off you have to become labor you you need to turn yourself into labor and labor as defined by uh the people who employ you, the co the corporations, the big the big cigars of our society, labor doesn't labor is neutral. Okay, you're supposed to go there and work and shut up. So now NFL players are saying, "Well, I want to protest. We have a bully pulpit here to protest social injustice and the murder of young people, people of color." on the streets by our police. I want to protest that, even though I'll go do my job, fine. I'll report on time. I'll put on the costume. I'll do everything I'm supposed to do. But I need to be able to say this. Ah, anyway. We'll see what happens. Mr. Trump is unwise to... Uh, get in an argument with she, with LeBron James. LeBron James, uh, Mr. Trump, as someone pointed out, Mr. Trump stops children at the border and separates them from their parents as a tactic to scare the parents, to keep the present from coming, the parents from coming to the U.S., Mr. James donates money. 
His foundation has helped kids stay in school. Ah, anyway. Now, to the front lines, Baltimore's Waterfront Marriott Hotel. Okay, let's hear what's going on there in Baltimore. This is from uh, Real News. Hi, Tharna Noor in Baltimore, Maryland, outside of the Marriott Waterfront Hotel. Uh, if you're just joining us here in front of the Marriott Waterfront Hotel in Baltimore, uh, just by Baltimore's Harbor, workers here are organizing with Unite Here to start a union here at the Baltimore Marriott Waterfront Hotel, live for the Real News Network here in Baltimore at the Waterfront Marriott Hotel, um, where again, workers are unionizing with Unite Here. Uh, they're rallying under the slogan, one job should be enough. As you can see, a picket has begun. There's workers and allies uh, standing here with them. Uh, and today I'm here with one of the uh, workers at this uh, hotel here. Hi, uh, what's your name? Hi, yes, my name is Sandra Williams. I have been working here at the Marriott for about a year and a half now. I will be going on my second year for about... Uh, my second year this December. Um, before, I started off as a DRA, a dining room attendant there. Um, since I've been here working here at the Marriott, I had to, had struggles to just climb into the kitchen. Um, and you're a cook? I am a cook now, but it took me over a year to get into this position. Not only that, as a DRA, there were times where we needed help, we needed time, we needed more PTO, we needed to we needed people to help us out. There were times when they said that, that we don't we don't we don't. We don't get recognized more enough. We don't get respect here. We don't whatsoever. And I feel like those things, those are the type of things that needs to change here. For us as employees, we should be comfortable in the environment that we work in. We're not. We've been so uncomfortable in this environment. We can't even pay, pay our bills. It's to the point of those that we have to make bills meet. We have to stretch our money just to make sure that we get to work. And, and, and it's time for that to stop. It needs to be a change. This company makes over billions and billions and billions of dollars and they don't even give out to the community. They gave, they have given a, a big tax break and only pay $18. In yeah, so um, so for folks who are just joining us, we're here um, at the Baltimore Wary, uh, Waterfront Hotel um, and as uh, you're explaining right now, uh, this hotel was actually built with a, a pilot a pilot, pro a pilot program which is the payment in lieu of taxes program. As you were saying, uh, they only pay $18 in taxes a year. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that affects your fight? I think that it affects the the work as far as not getting enough equipment in here. We should be able to come here and have the necessary tools to do our job, and we don't. And this company has the money to give it out. How can we have um, a great productive day at work and we don't even have the equipment to work with? I think it's sad. And we should we deserve much more as people. And to live, we need more. We need more. We really do. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of your demands uh, and, and what some of the, the actual, like the actions and uh, and uh, needs are that uh, created this need to organize? Yes, more hours. We don't get 40 hours during the week. Um, more pay. Even if getting $40 during the, during the week, we still don't make bills meet at all whatsoever. We also need new equipment. We also need... We do need employment in some staffs. It's, it's understaffed in certain places. And I feel as though that we shouldn't have to do, we shouldn't have to do doubles 
to, to make ends meet. One job should be enough. One job should be enough. Does that mean that uh, a lot of workers here have multiple jobs? Yes. A lot of, a lot of workers leave here and go to their second job. Some stay, some work overnight, some work during the morning, some work all day, some don't, don't get a break whatsoever. We shouldn't have to leave a regular day job to go to another job just to make ends meet. It's sad. There you go from the front lines of a picket line in Baltimore, Maryland, where workers at the Marriott Hotel there Waterfront Marriott um, are on on strike. They're picketing, demanding a better life. One job should be enough. Well, shouldn't it? You'd think so. One job should be enough. Okay, you're listening to Labor and Love Radio, and I am the B. Got some things to talk to you about. Let's see. Come come and donate. Get online and donate to our GoFundMe. You can donate directly to Mutiny Radio online. Go to the mutinyradio.fm uh, site on Facebook for more details. You can go to the website mutinyradio.fm and donate there. You can donate to our GoFundMe, which is still going on. Even better than all those things, or as well as those things, is coming down here to Mutiny Radio with your energy and your art, whatever that might be. We have uh, art installations, Usually every month, community artists get to show their work. It's Mutiny Radio is really the center of the San Francisco underground comedy comedy establishment, unestablishment. <laughs> Several comedy shows here every week. Um, come on down with your. with your ideas for a performance space. It's a compact performance space that'll fit about 30 people. We have video shows, and of course we have our radio, our radio station, which you're listening to right now. Talking about people in prison. Here's the band.
shall get them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. The strong gets more While the weak ones fade Empty pockets don't Ever make the grave Mama may have Papa may have But God bless the child That's got his own That's got his own Sleeping in the cars in the southwest No home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway's alive and night But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line 
searching for the ghost of Tom Jones. He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag. Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag. Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In a cardboard box neath the underpass. Got a one-way ticket to the promised land You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand Sleeping on a pillow of solid rock Bathing in the city aqueduct Well, the highway's alive at night Well, it's hitted, everybody knows I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Waiting on the ghost of Tom Jones And now Tom said Wherever's a cop beating a guy Wherever a hungry newborn baby cries Where there's a fight against the blood and hatred in the air Look for me, mom, I'll be there Wherever somebody's fighting for a place to stand Or a decent job or a helping hand Wherever somebody's struggling to be free Look in their eyes, Mom, you'll see me Well, the highway's alive at night But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line With the ghost of old Tom Confirmo 
a completo todo mi ser Es como encontrar un tesoro perdido Pasando mi vida en busca de él Y con el amor no más no se juega No hay otra ley más fuerte que entero y caminar No tengo papeles ni tú los tienes Y la ley prohíbe nuestra unión Pero que es la vida si no arriesgamos Verás que las puertas las abre Dios Le cierran las puertas al inmigrante Quienes no entran en la razón Pero el que busca al fin encuentra Transformaremos esta nación entero y caminar con el amor no más no se juega pueblo mío hay otra ley más fuerte que hay otra ley más fuerte que ya el amor no tiene fronteras entero y caminar con papeles o sin Francisco Herrera <coughs> with his song Amor Sin Papeles we can't we can't fall in love because I don't have papers and neither do you but we'll fall in love anyway Amor Sin Papeles love without your your papers your documents your citizenship And I played before that Bruce Springsteen's uh, version of the Ballad of Tom Joad, the Ghost of Tom Joad, a Dylan song. I'm not sure. Uh, Tom Joad, of course, the character in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. 
a young Oki who comes with his family to California in the 1930s and and how they're treated. And before that, Billie Holiday with God Bless the Child. Uh, God Bless the Child that's got his own. These days, a lot of children don't have their own. They need the help of their parents just to get off the ground, just to have their own place, just to uh, go to whatever education they want to go to to get ready to work. God bless the child that's got his own. And before that, apropos of our prison story about the uh, firefighters, I shall be released by the band. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. But I remember every face of every man that put me here. All right, I wanted to play some uh, Decoded here. Let's play that. Decoded, three black female stereotypes that need to die. We really need to talk about how black women are portrayed in pop culture. Cut, great, but let's get it sassier. Really? Perfect. From the sassy black friend to the sexy prostitute on the wrong side of the tracks to the overly helpful house cleaner, black women are so very often stereotyped in pop culture. But these stereotypes are more than lazy writing, they have long histories. So maybe we should just get fucking rid of them. Meet the Jezebel. She's sexual, she's aggressive, she just wants it all the time. You know what I mean. And considering we live in such a hypersexual world, the Jezebel must be a new thing, right? Not even close. When Europeans first traveled to Africa in the 17th century, they were shocked that African dress exposed so much skin, totally ignoring the fact that it's way hotter in Africa than in Europe. <gasps> Why don't you have 17 skirts on? The horny European explorers then assumed African women were sexually lewd animals trying to seduce them. And thus, the Jezebel stereotype was born. And in 19th century America, the long running stereotype of African women with large sexual appetites was often used by slave owners to justify rape. In fact, it was argued that it wasn't possible to rape a black woman because of that fabled sexual appetite. Cut to the Jim Crow South, and everyday items like ashtrays, postcards, and drinking glasses depicted over-sexualized images of black women and girls, reinforcing this dangerous stereotype. And it was dangerous. During that time, black women were regularly assaulted by white men and they rarely faced criminal charges. And while this stereotype has persisted throughout TV and film history, today you can usually find the Jezebel archetype in music videos and all over reality TV. It also pops up in the policing of black women's bodies and sexuality. Just ask Rihanna or Nikki or Beyonce. But remember, too much sexuality can be threatening. So meet the mammy. Mammy's fat, old, and very dark-skinned. She was given these physical traits to show that she was undesirable and prove that white slave owners didn't find black women attractive. The Mammy lived on through Jim Crow to imply that black women were only fit to be domestic workers. We began to see the Mammy characters everywhere, from books and movies to 
advertising, like Aunt Jemima. And if you think this stereotype doesn't still have power in media, the first black woman to win an Academy Award for acting was Hattie McDaniel, playing a slave-era mammy in Gone with the Wind. 70-plus years later, the incredibly talented Octavia Spencer won an Oscar for playing a 1950s-style mammy in The Help. So black women are either seductresses or non-sexual happy workers. So what else is there? Meet the headstrong black woman. She's loud, she's sassy, and she doesn't take anybody's shit. Let's skip straight to the root of this pop culture stereotype, Amos and Andy. In the 1930s, this popular radio show took the world by storm. While the two main characters were supposed to be black, they were actually voiced by white men, and the entire appeal of the show was the mockery of black behavior and dialect. As if that wasn't offensive enough, the duo were joined by Kingfish, their con artist friend, and his his domineering, aggressive, and emasculating, nagging wife, Sapphire, the prototypical headstrong black woman. Amos and Andy later became a TV show, which was eventually protested by the NAACP, but the damage was already done. The show popularized racial caricatures of black people. Here, Americans learned that black people were comical, not as actors, but as a race. Following the success of Amos and Andy, sitcoms in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s copied this portrayal of black women and wives, from the Jeffrey to Martin, black women were often shown as naggy and always having a sassy comeback to any challenge. Fast forward to the 90s, the headstrong black woman becomes the sassy black friend, with characters like Dion in Clueless or Nurse Laverne Roberts in Scrubs, and basically every reality show about black women. Spoiler alert, reality TV isn't reality. Popular media often relegates black women to the one-dimensional sidekick with lots of sass and endless one-liners, but little personality. As much as we try to deny it, media plays a major part in how we view the world around us and promotes a general sense of self. When 70% of black women say that they fear their coworkers perceiving them as the sassy black woman and then attempt to change their personalities to fit in, don't you think it's time to retire this stereotype? Sexy, shy, sassy, demure, black women come with all sorts of personalities. So it's time for media to wise up and show us in all of our complexity, instead of the one-note stereotypes we've seen over the years. We really need to talk about how black women... Okay, that's Francesca Ramsey from Decoded. Time for us to get out of here. I'm going to go out with our favorite uh, our favorite um, conscientious, conscientious objector. Let's see. There it is. Man who went to prison rather than you know the blues speak of so many things serve and making a kind of variety of the program it requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about and when you think about the various nations of the earth various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world, we have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles, 
But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else. Wise men, great men from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world, have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Time and we're ready to groove in the mission for the 6th Annual Noise Pop Block Party. It's free, Saturday, August 18th from noon to 6 p.m. with bands Empress Of, Jeff Rosenstock, The Marias, The She's, Small Crush, The Total Bettys, and more. Come to Mutiny Radio for special programming all afternoon, including live comics, karaoke on the radio for donations, and interviews with main stage bands. Bring your family, friends, neighbors, and dogs on August 18th to benefit Mission Language and Vocational School and celebrate the peak of sunshine. For more info, check out the Noise Pop Block Party website at www.20thstreetblockparty.com. Hey, Mutineers, Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Thank you. 
out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for... <laughs> it's in duty, this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) Hey, guys. How's it going? Pretty great, I'm sure. Um, we have a little announcement for you. A PSA of sorts. Yes. Uh, listen to Cowards every 10 a.m. to 11 on Mutiny Radio. On Fridays! Yay! For some sweet, scared storytelling. Please do it. We need you. (laughs) So badly. Yes. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) And all the kissing is kissing. What is... Flat black plastic. What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat black plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scotto Walker. Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, 
crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor.